You're listening to Language Nerds to Earth, a podcast about linguistics, culture, travel, and how they're all connected. Now it's time to meet your language nerd hosts. One in China, one in Spain. It's Patrice and Rachel. Hello, everybody. I'm Patrice. And I'm Rachel. And this is Language Nerds to Earth. We are on episode 47. Yeah, pretty cool stuff today, too. And I think it's going to be something maybe you've never thought about, or maybe you have. I don't know. Yeah, today we're going to talk about mental illnesses across cultures. So this is actually something that I was introduced to in my very first psychology class, and I eventually was a psych major. Um, that doesn't mean I'm a psychologist. Neither of us is a psychologist yeah. by any means. But I think we're both really interested in the topic. Mm-hmm. And what do we mean? So today we're not going to be talking about the way that mental illnesses are perceived or are viewed in different cultures, mm-hmm. but actually how they are manifested differently. Yes, and different rates at which they might be manifested in different cultures as well, which is really interesting to me. The idea of an episode on the way they're perceived across cultures is a potential future episode. Mm-hmm. So, But yes, today we're not going to be doing that. <laughs> okay, so let's talk a little bit about the layout today. So first we're going to talk about why culture is relevant in mental illness diagnosis, Mm -hmm. and then look at some specific examples of that. Exactly. But first, we have some language news. Ugh. Rachel found the world's best language news, honestly. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's really interesting, too. Yeah. And it's, I guess, in the linguistic world, sort of a recent article... I don't think the news moves as fast as maybe in other topics, but this is from March, and it's the idea that the way that our diets have changed has actually allowed for more sounds in language. Mm. So specifically, changing to a softer diet that comes with more agriculture and cultivation eating things like grains or cheese or breads, etc., actually changes the bite that we have. Uh, so instead of having your teeth lined up as would have happened on a more meat-based hunter-forager diet, our teeth have an overbite, so our top teeth come in front of our bottom teeth for the most part. Yeah, if you've seen like prehistoric humans who subsisted on a meat-based diet, you might notice that their teeth are often actually perfect, like really sharp and um, very, very well aligned. Mm -hmm. And then as time went on, like Rachel was saying, our, our diets changed and our teeth also changed. Have you seen that? Am I crazy? Or that's a thing, right? I think so. I mean, I hadn't really thought of it in those terms until reading this article, but yeah, it makes sense to me. Yeah. Uh, You're using more your front teeth to, like, cut things, and I guess they need to come together. Yeah, exactly. So what effect has that had on our language? So it facilitated the use of F and V, or F and V, 
which are labiodental sounds, meaning they use your lips and your teeth. And this is apparently about 30% easier with our current mouth structure than if our teeth were together perfectly. That's so crazy. So think about people who have an underbite. It's probably harder for them to say F or V because, yeah, they're teeth aren't as close to their lip. It's actually really hard. I just tried it. <laughs> yeah, you have to like do a do an F with your bottom teeth instead of your top. Yeah, exactly. Your bottom t- <laughs> What am I doing here? It's like it's really hard. I don't know. I don't know what's happening, but it's difficult. And so apparently they did a lot of statistics and looking at different languages that come from various either agricultural or more hunter-based societies and they found that across about 2,000 languages they could trace the use of those sounds so they found that hunter-gatherer societies have only about 27 percent as many of those sounds as food-producing societies. Isn't that crazy? That's so crazy. I had no idea. I would never have imagined. It makes sense. Yeah. And so they mentioned the importance that just because a society produced food and they had the option of those sounds doesn't mean that they started using them. Right. They gave the example of the V sound in Spanish. They have the F sound, but the V is not usually said. It's more like a B. Mm-hmm. Same in Chinese, actually. They have, a, they have an F sound, as in fan, but they don't have a V sound, as in very, for example. So mm-hmm. that's a big thing as a teacher is I'm, I try to teach, like, I spend a lot of time go- going V, 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 V <laughs> with my students. <laughs> Yeah, but I had no idea that this was a thing. I'm a huge fan of um, evolutionary theories in conjunction with, like, things that affect us today. Mm-hmm. So the other thing that this study found was that modern-day humans, when they're infants and early adolescents, actually start out with the same bike configuration as young hunter-gatherers thousands of years ago with an overbite. But the bite configuration actually changes depending on your diet. Now, I have to say that the modern diet must not include a lot of uh, sugar-free dried mangoes. Because I don't know about you, but those take a lot of work. <laughs> like A lot of teeth coming together, yeah. tearing. and I always feel like I'm really giving my teeth a good workout when I eat those. I'm a big fan. I have a bit of a mango problem. So Trader Joe's Simply Mangoes. Those are the world's best dried mangoes. Have you had them? I have, and they're very delicious. Oh, so good. So, yeah, that's pretty interesting to think about how diet could actually influence language. or Yeah. I guess diet influences mouth structure, which influences potential for the sounds that we can make which influences language exactly that's so crazy yeah huh i love that language news very cool yeah 
I did not know anything about that, so <laughs> it was really interesting to read about it. I heard this theory a long time ago. It was that people developed language, you know, obviously for hunting and gathering, so like it actually was the reason that Homo sapiens prevailed over Neanderthals, because they were able to like communicate, okay, you go around that bush, and I'll hide under this thing, and then, you know, we'll kill our prey more successfully because we're able to like coordinate with each other and okay uh therefore that's like the survival of the fittest that happened maybe that can be an evolution of first language sometime yeah okay anyway great language news let's jump into the episode yeah Mm -hmm. so it may seem a little bit counterintuitive to think about culture and mental illness but it's actually if you think about it culture forms who we are and it also changes the way that we express mental illnesses it used to be thought that mental illnesses could be diagnosed and they were universal Mm -hmm. they always show up in the same way right but i think more recently They've been, definitely in the last century, but maybe in the last 40 years, they've been updating the ideas of why they're connected and how that's super important for diagnosis. Yeah. I would say maybe even more, like, within the last decade or two. Yeah. I think that you put it really well, like, you think of mental illness as something that just happens internally, but... It's actually a whole expression of us and how we interact with our environment. Yeah. So in the latter part of the 19th century and the early 20th century, psychologists described these variations in the way that mental illness is expressed as culture-bound psychoses or culture-bound syndromes, which sounds just kind of very dismissive. And, oh, that's just people from that culture express it in this weird way. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And they only affected people from a certain culture. Right. So, in a way, it almost makes those people sound a bit more mentally ill. Yeah. If you... I don't know. That's how I interpret it anyway. Yeah, I, I think so. Yeah, because it only affects people in a specific culture. So it actually almost makes the culture sound sick. Yeah. Like, oh, you have this illness. It's because you're American. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, or it's because you're a Jew, or it's because you're from India. Mm, Like, I think it sounds pretty dismissive. And it's like the only proper way to express this is the way that we do. So I think that has really changed a lot in the last century. And now the way that it's referred to is more like cultural concepts of distress. Mm. So that would show like different ways of expressing a very common thing, distress in this case, Mm -hmm. and it varies by culture. Right, so... It manifests differently from culture to culture. So I think it's fair to say that there's a spectrum of nature and nurture and different 
different levels of influence of each one. Mm-hmm. And certain people have a certain propensity for mental illness in whatever shape or form. And their culture will help influence not only how that mental illness manifests, but also the likelihood of it manifesting. Yes, that's another thing that varies a lot by culture or by socially constructed group. In the case that I'm thinking is different minorities, and that could be a number of different things. It could be ethnic minorities or religious minorities or... Mm -hmm even based on sexuality, mm-hmm. things that are part of our identity and can contribute to the way that we understand and interact with the world. Yeah, exactly. So apparently, ethnic and racial minorities, in this case, are disproportionately affected by mental disorders, and they are often the people who are least likely to receive mental health care. Now we're moving into... Different ethnicities might have different influences from their culture, but depending on your ethnicity, or uh, especially if you're a racial minority, you also might have less access to healthcare or to the resources you need to help you get through a difficult episode. Yes, and so the barriers to mental health care are especially in place for people who are members of ethnic or racial minorities. So that might be mental illness stigma, which is huge across lots of different cultures. I read accounts of people who are from the African-American culture who were Hispanic, people who were Hasidic Jews, all these different groups where it is stigmatized. Mm -hmm. And that is obviously going to lead you to probably not seeking mental health care at the rate that might be appropriate. Right. I mean, different groups of people deal with issues in different ways. So even like in China, it's very common in China for teachers in international schools to be frustrated because uh, in Asia... Autism and uh, special needs students are not usually integrated into the mainstream classroom the way they've been in the last decade or two in the U.S. They're often cast aside, sent to special schools, and a lot of times you'll have a student in a class with a behavioral disability and the parent will pretend that that doesn't exist. And so then it's just not dealt with when if it had been dealt with, then early intervention could make a big difference. Um, But instead you have this really disruptive student or maybe not disruptive, but an autistic student who didn't get the help he or she needed because his or her parent wasn't willing to accept it. And so that's just different views of, for example, learning disabilities. And I I don't want to say that one is better than the other, but it can be really frustrating coming from one culture and watching it handled a different way in another culture when you feel like the person in question isn't getting the help that he or she could have gotten. Mm-hmm. And is that because in Chinese culture it's seen as less than or it's seen as 
a sort of a weakness or a flaw? Yes, I think so. I think it's seen as a weakness. Yeah, and, you know, in Chinese culture and a lot of Asian cultures, you know, they've been just kind of catching up uh, development in first world countries. And Mm -hmm. over the last hundred years or so, they've had to, like, be really competitive with each other, you know? Yeah. Actually, I just found out recently that in China, it's illegal to find out the sex of your baby before it's born. Because... Really? Yeah. uh, Like, you'll ask a woman in China when she's pregnant, like, do you know if it's a girl or a boy? And they'll be like, I I don't know. I'm not allowed to know that. (laughs) Because in China, it was so common to abort female babies. Right. And the result is that there are so many men in China. So... But yeah, I think that has to do with just like a social system where the elderly depend on the success of their grandchildren and children to have a good life. And so there's so much pressure put on the youth, I think, that parents want to give their kid the best possible chances in life. Mm -hmm. And if that means going into denial about the way their kid is because it's it's not going to be advantageous to their kids and they know how they're going to be perceived in life then that's that's what it entails so Mm. sorry that's a bit of a tangent yeah well no it's interesting though and i think it's sort of similar to maybe depression yeah and if it's like in latin culture it's also seen as a weakness and just man up and deal with it Mm mm-hmm So a lot of people don't get these kind of things taken care of and are not seeking out mental health care for things that, at least in the U.S., are starting to be seen as a bit more acceptable, although it has been stigmatized for a long time in the U.S. too. Yeah, very much so. And it's just recently that people are a little bit starting to open up about it and... Yeah. Yeah. So it makes sense. I mean, you don't want to be perceived in a way that's, let's say, less than. Yeah, you don't want to be different, basically, in a yeah in a way that doesn't make you look cool. <laughs> yeah, and some other barriers to mental health care for minorities are also lack of diversity among mental health care providers. So people outside of your own culture, that can be difficult to be understood by them Mm -hmm. also lack of culturally competent providers so if they're not properly trained in reading cues from other cultures then you might be completely misdiagnosed Mm -hmm. that's such a good point like body language across different cultures is incredibly different like eye contact and tone of voice and like sarcasm even are very very culturally specific and I think that we tend to take that for granted yeah and somebody who isn't aware of that kind of thing can really mess up on reading cues and when we look at some specific different manifestations they might completely just your symptoms look like something else completely and they would treat it in the way that is common for their culture which might be not even close to the real diagnosis Yeah. So that could be very problematic and potentially dangerous. Definitely, yeah. 
Well, from there, actually, that's a really great opportunity to start talking about specific cases that Rachel was talking about. Mm. Yeah. So one example that I read was so interesting. The case was a man who was very distressed and anxious, and he felt like he had insects crawling under his skin. So traditionally, in a Western context, this would be a symptom of perhaps schizophrenia. Yeah. Hallucination, yeah. And the grad student who was examining him thought he sounded psychotic and possibly Mm. schizophrenic. And so she went immediately to her supervisor who said, oh, is he Nigerian? And she said, yes. And she said, oh. Then in that case, he's having a panic attack. What? <sighs> so it's called Ode Ori, this kind of panic attack that's experienced in a completely different way. And so would easily be misdiagnosed. So Ode Ori is from the Yoruba culture of Nigeria, and it's how they experience acute distress. Wow. I wonder why. Just the way that culture influences is very, very different. That's so crazy. Maybe crazy is not the best word for an episode about mental illness. (laughs) (laughs) You're right. Yeah, I'm trying to think, like, if it could be, like, it's culture-bound. I wonder if it's tied to the language as well. Like, the idea of panicking has to do with, I don't know. What else do we have? So, another example would be what was described as Arctic hysteria in the late 1800s. Basically, women especially women, would be, like, quiet and sullen, and then they would begin screaming and yelling and tearing their clothes off and running around in the freezing dark. And these episodes could last for hours until they finally collapsed and fell into a deep sleep, And they would have very little memory of what had happened after they woke up. Wow. So the diagnosis, this was the late 1800s, early 1900s. They had some pretty racist and colonialistic ideas about it. That basically... I would imagine. um, Basically, they were mentally inferior, that they were raised as savages... So this would not affect Westerners. However, it did affect some European sailors who were surrounded by ice and they had a similar type of episode. So finally, they have updated the definition or the explanation of it as a dissociative trance disorder with a distinctive cultural expression and it's involuntary state of dissociation, and it can be found in several different cultures around the world, but they share a similar mode of expression. Wow. So is there anything in common among the different cultures that, like, in the environment or something? I'm not sure. I did not find that. That's really interesting. Yeah. But of course, in the last century, it's come a long way. 
Yeah. In the thinking and the, the theories about it. Yeah, definitely. And another thing that was interesting in this article was some researchers in Ghana gave questionnaires to participants, uh, and they asked them to tell how they felt at different points in their day. And apparently they thought it would take about 10 minutes, and over half an hour later, they hadn't responded, and they were really confused. So they asked what was wrong, and they said, well, how, how am I supposed to know how I feel? And so the idea is of naming your emotions and expressing, I feel sad or I feel ecstatic or something like that was a pretty foreign concept. And it's not something in their culture to talk about their feelings like that. Right. They might not even have a lot of language around feelings. Yeah, possibly. Well, I, that even reminds me of like stereotypical male and female expectations in the US. Like women are expected to know how to talk about their feelings and to be really in touch with their emotions, whereas mm -hmm. men aren't really supposed to talk about their feelings. So even within the same culture, there can be a lot of variety. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, and if you never had to really express yourself... I think that also kind of throws off the research when it comes to finding out about mental illness across cultures, mm -hmm. because how do you measure something that is so subjective, depending on the personal experiences, when people aren't able to verbalize them? Yeah, well, they completely had to redo the study. Yeah, I would Red imagine. Redesign the study, because... It wasn't measuring what they wanted to measure. Yeah. So what examples did you find? I found an article on anorexia and bulimia across cultures. I think that is, to me, it's really interesting. I don't know why. I've always just been fascinated by different perceptions of not necessarily beauty, but, you know, ideal bodies across cultures. And so I, I remember learning at some point that, like, you know, anorexia is presented differently in different areas of the world. So I found some numbers. There's a really interesting theory that Western cultures have higher rates of anorexia and bulimia. So just to make sure that we're all super clear on the difference, anorexia is purposefully not getting enough calories into your body, often starving yourself or taking extreme measures in, in terms of exercise in order to dramatically lose weight. Mm -hmm. And then bulimia, often people will take part in purging activities in order to get rid of calories that they've consumed. But there's this really interesting theory that among Western countries, the disease is manifested more strongly. So looking at Western countries alone, Switzerland has the lowest incidence of abnormal eating attitudes among female subjects. So that was only 8.3% among college students. Okay. By contrast, at the ballet school in Berlin in 1998, 21.6% of females showed abnormal eating attitudes. Wow. So that's pretty high. 
It's the highest in the most recent studies. Students majoring in ballet, arts, medicine, and nursing in the UK had the highest scores of anorexia and bulimia. So average Western country participants had abnormal eating attitudes between 8.3% and 26%. So, you know, it's pretty high. So that means of all the people? Mostly women that they measured in these Western countries. Okay. So of all the population of women, it's 8.3 yeah. to 26%. Wow. Yeah. And we'll link this article up in the show notes. It's from the National Institute of Health. There weren't as many studies in non-Western countries, but the prevalence of eating disorders has been rising among non-Western countries. So in China, they didn't give me a number, but the percentage of eating attitudes were almost the same for male and female college students. In Hong Kong, it's about 6.5 of female subjects. And in Korea, 8.5% of male and female participants in this survey had abnormal eating attitudes. Wow. But the percentage of abnormal eating attitudes in female subjects in non-Western countries was very different. It ranged from 0.8% to 39.5. Wow. So much, much higher. And I'm trying to find where it was that it was 39.5 in Pakistan. So what do these numbers mean? There are some really interesting theories. It has been claimed that people with eating disorders have been mostly white women, but recently eating disorders have been reported in non-Western countries such as the Middle East and China, and the authors pointed to a study that suggested women who have more exposure to Western culture have higher abnormal eating attitude scores. Does that make sense? Right, yeah. So... If they had more contact with Western culture, they were more likely to eat abnormally? Yeah, that's right. So having an eating disorder is kind of tied into not just Western, but also just it's a culture of modernity characterized by an internationalized socioeconomic stratum now found in many rapidly urbanizing parts of the world. So as people become more and more urbanized, it becomes more modern to have a certain look. Mm. And it also becomes more modern to eat a certain way that's less healthy for you. And so it's, I think it's kind of a vicious cycle. Mm. While people have a more modern diet and a more modern lifestyle, they also have more modern cultural influence and perceptions of beauty. Not necessarily, I shouldn't say modern, but more Western Western, perceptions of beauty. And then they might engage in more extreme behavior in order to uh, fulfill that perception of beauty. Hmm. And is it expressed always the same? The same radical cutting of calories or the same purging? So that's what I really wanted to know. The article that I found didn't really talk about that, but it did say, you know, just basically like self-imposed starvation. Mm Mm-hmm. Or fasting. And it's always for, like, a beauty aesthetic? I don't know. <laughs> well, that would be interesting to find out if it was... Yeah, definitely. ...always for the same reason as well, and if it's carried out in the same way. Right. So one of the reported explanations for the development of eating disorders 
is the social pressure resulting from the standards of female beauty imposed by modern industrial society or Western culture. Mm. It looks like it, yeah. But there was a contrasting study. It was an Iranian study. Women in Tehran who were more interested in Western culture were actually more likely to be satisfied with their body shape. Hmm. So it suggests that effects of culture on eating disorders could be limited. It might also be influenced by the culture that they're in. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think about women in the Middle East who often have to cover up their body. Mm. So they come from... Well, there's there's not the extreme pressure on having the quote-unquote perfect body that's like toned and really slim because it's not usually shown in the same detail, at least. Yeah, true. Well, that's really interesting. Yeah, it's it's so cool to me to learn about different manifestations of mental illness across cultures, I think, um, because it, it's something that ties us all together, mm. but also what happens internally, it's a very human thing, and then watching how it's um, influenced by our surroundings is just super fascinating. Yeah, and like depression, let's say, might look different from culture to culture. It's interesting to see kind of the subtle ways, I guess, in which we're influenced by our culture that we probably don't even know. Like, yeah, how can you internalize something so much? Like, if I were depressed, I would express it in the same way that my culture does, most likely, and not in the way that someone else's culture. And it's not that someone showed me how to be depressed. Right. But yeah. it's just something so internalized, I don't know what it comes from. It's really interesting. Yeah, and um, I don't know, I think about the difference between like American and European culture mm-hmm. and how people from the U.S. put so much pressure on themselves to be happy all the time. And, you know, life isn't, life just doesn't always need to be happy and it, it isn't naturally perfect, right? And I feel like Europeans have kind of a a more, not pessimistic, like a a bit more of a realistic attitude on life. Yeah. Yeah, just like their expectations are not quite as high as Americans. And you can kind of see that in like cultural polls. Like, what do you think of the future? Like in our episode on millennials versus baby boomers, like in the US and Europe, uh, Americans were a lot more optimistic, whereas Europeans were much more pessimistic. But the economies are, are very similar, like, in their trajectory. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it's cool that we talked about eating disorders as well, because that maybe wasn't, like, a difference in the way that they manifested, but at the rates in which they were manifested. So that's pretty interesting. And the influences from other cultures, or from Western culture specifically, on the rates in different cultures. So let us know what you think. If you know any other specific examples of mental illnesses that are expressed differently across cultures, let us know. It would be super interesting to make a list of these. Don't be afraid to reach out, especially if you have some personal experience with this topic anytime. Even if you're listening a year from now and you're just like, man, I really like this podcast, Patrice and Rachel. I have a lot to say about it. Don't be shy. Reach out to us. We always want to know what you think. 
about something that we said no matter when it happened. Yeah, and if it's something that you feel is personal and you would rather stay anonymous, that's fine. Or if you just want to share a private message with us, also perfectly fine. We would love to hear from you. And if it's something that you would like to share as well, just let us know, basically. Yeah, exactly. And if we haven't said it already in this episode, to do that, just go to languagenerdsdoearth.com, no www, and go to the contact slash LIT section uh, to send us a private message. You could send us a voice message or an email, or you could send it to languagenerdsdoearth at gmail.com. Okay, well, thank you so much for listening, everybody. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast so you can get episodes as soon as they come out. We have some special ones coming up in the next few weeks. Mm-hmm. And follow us on social media. We are on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Pinterest. And so just look for Language Nerds to Earth and you'll find us there. And make sure you leave us a little review on iTunes. We are always looking for your reviews and your love. And tell your friends. If you enjoy it, help them subscribe too. Thank you so, so much for listening. So our next episode is going to be about street music. Ooh, cool. Yes, be sure to tune in for that, and we will see you next week. Yeah, thanks. Have a great week. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. Hey, buddy. Come here. Hey, mini butt. Like, our teeth lined up uh, as... Sorry. Let's have a crying dog here (laughs) in his sleep. (laughs) I, like, couldn't see your face, and I was getting... "Eh, uh, eh, Uh, Review. eh." That's a bummer. Yeah.